Hello, and welcome to Right Carrot Baptist. Today, Henry and I are with Laura Cummins and Wade Ray to discuss the implications of the information blocking rule as uh, coming down from the 21st Century Cures Act. Laura and Wade, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Laura and, and Wade, do you want us to just give us a little bit of your background and tell us what you do for Baptist? Sure. My name is Laura Cummins. I am the Corporate Privacy and Security Officer for Baptist. I started originally at the uh, medical group at Baptist and then moved over to the privacy office and then now to my current position. And so I am an attorney and I do anything and everything privacy and security for Baptist. And my name is Wade Ray. My title is the Associate Chief Legal Counsel. And basically what I do is I uh, oversee Baptist day-to-day -day legal operations. Uh, so that mostly um, works around safe transactional legal work all the way down to doing direct, you know, clinical type of legal issues, you know, patient care issues, consents, and things of that character. And what percentage of your time would you say is keeping Henry in line? Uh, 90, well above 90. Yeah, that's, majority of my job is also trying to do that. It's, a, it's very tough. <laughs> hey, 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 easy, easy boys and girls. <laughs> Well, Henry, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, please. So, so either of you. So, so in the first reading of the 21st Century Cures Act, I thought it dealt primarily with with helping to bring to the public drugs and new devices that might improve care. So it was a way, I, I think, of of kind of getting some of the barriers out of the way to get new products, new pharmaceuticals to to front line. Is is that correct? Well, that's part of it. Uh, it. Uh as you mentioned, addresses uh, how the federal government approves medical devices, how research is conducted in stage renal disease, all kinds of various healthcare issues uh, when it was first signed into law in December 2016. But one component of that, in fact, it's a somewhat small component of the over 300 pages of this statute is this information blocking rule. So the information blocking rule, Wade, is what I think has, has certainly all the clinicians and all the IT side of the house with their electronic health record kind of on their heels, trying to get, trying to get their heads wrapped around. What exactly is this blocking rule? What does it mean? It's the federal government's effort to, in my opinion, accomplish two things. Uh, number one, I think there is a recognition by most clinicians and most of the authorities at both state and federal government levels that higher quality health care can be delivered when all providers have direct access to pretty much a patient's entire health information. So I think, number one, the federal government is trying to address that goal of making HI information almost universally accessible. But secondly, I think it's also in response to the way that many healthcare providers have reacted to HIPAA, uh, in that HIPAA is used somewhat as an excuse to deny information sharing with other healthcare providers or insurance carriers or things of that nature. So I think they're trying to address that too by, by saying, thou shalt not block this information from those entities, even though HIPAA would suggest otherwise. So is it is it a, a push? I mean, is it a push and pull? If I'm a provider in uh, Austin, Texas, and a patient uh, comes to me from Memphis, am I allowed to pull information, or does the patient have to push the information to me? 
So, so any kind of sharing for treatment purposes is something that we are allowed to do without that patient's authorization. What this is doing is providing the patient access to their information, not necessarily with the treatment, payment, healthcare operations that we are already sending patient information to other entities. This is allowing me as a patient to be more involved in my healthcare and have access to my health information. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what we the the questions and concerns that have been coming to us is on is providers that are worried about how patients will react to uh, getting results or notes that uh, they normally wouldn't have had access to without an explanation from the physician or other care team member. Um, and so that's that's a lot of what we want to do with this episode is just kind of go through those concerns and what the law says about them. And so maybe we could just start off with. Uh, under what circumstances is, is is it permitted for a healthcare organization or a, a provider group to block or delay uh, a test result or note? Well, let me take one step backwards from that, Dr. Lancaster. Let's let's define kind of what information blocking is. Uh, it's a practice, and I'm reading directly from the sure. regs. It's a practice that is likely to interfere with the access, exchange, and use electronic health information, acceptance required by law or covered by an exception. And there are three key words in that phrase, access, exchange, and use. Patients must be able to access their health information on an almost real-time basis as a result of this. You cannot prohibit exchanges of healthcare information between rightful uh, accessors of that information, and it must be delivered to someone else who has a right to access it in a useful manner. So that's what the access exchange and use is. So said another way, you must allow this access uh, unless your facility or your practitioner meets one of eight specific exceptions. Now, for those of you that are familiar with uh, Stark and, and a kickback, that same word is used in the Stark Law. Uh, the Stark Law is a strict liability statute. You're conducting something illegally unless you are exactly into an exception. And this uh, statute is somewhat like Stark uh, in that, you know, if, uh, if the patient ex might experience some type of information blocking, it's an illegal act, even if, and I'm quoting again the statute, even if no law materializes. So there are eight exceptions. Uh, those are preventing harm, privacy, security, infeasibility, health IT performance, content and manner, fee and licensing. So if, let me give you an example. Preventing harm means that you have the right to block access to information if, on an individualized basis, you can show that a patient or some other person will be harmed if that information is accessible. Privacy, well, a patient has a right to control their own information. If they want you to block it, well, obviously they have the right to require you to do that. Uh, security, if opening up your server to allow someone else to you know, come in and access their health information poses a legitimate security risk. You can basically turn your server off 
for that period of time until you uh, remediate that problem. Infeasibility simply means I'm assuming that, for example, you lose power to your data server or you lose your internet connection and it just won't work. Uh, health IT performance means that you can take your servers down periodically to do routine maintenance on them. Content and manner. Um, content means that you don't have to share every single piece of information, every scrap of information. Uh, there is basically a defined data set uh, that the government has has uh, instituted, and if someone is asking you to share information outside that data set, you're not required to do so. And the last two, fee and licensing, really only uh, I think would come into play when you have maybe some app developer who wants to uh, access, you know, health information to to kind of support his app. And out of those eight exceptions, in my opinion, providers are going to be most interested in the first two, preventing harm and privacy. So, so waiter, Laura, let, let me let me ask you a question then, because there the, there is a there's a significant amount of gray uh, that that lies in that preventing harm, and uh, if in in your history taking of the patient. Uh, he or she shares with you uh, confidential information of uh, prior personal behavior, if you will, uh, that, that it could be uh, either um, substance misuse history, which is important to know, or it could be um, personal behavior such as sexual behavior, et cetera. All of this would be, is very sensitive, uh, even if there is no uh, need for it to be health sensitive. How how is that information to be captured? Because it certainly may have a lot to do with understanding a person's illness or how they're presenting to your practice that day. How is how is material? I mean, how is information like that captured? Is it in a, a separate sensitive note area that is not disclosed? Uh, how how does one handle that? Uh, no, uh, there really is no provision in the statute or case law that I'm aware of that allows you to segregate sensitive information. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look at some of the informal governance that, uh, uh, excuse me, the informal guidance uh, that the government is issuing is just because an individual may be upset or emotionally or psychologically shocked by accessing that information, it is not a reason to, to block it. And so they're very specific in what they're saying here. Uh, you must really meet four elements. Uh, that pay, You must have a reasonable belief that blocking will substantially reduce the, the likelihood of harm to a patient or another person. So let me give you an example. Uh, you're an oncologist and you're treating a patient and he tells you in confidence uh, doctor, I simply cannot do this anymore. If this biopsy comes back positive, I just think I'm going to end my life. Well, I think that is certainly a reasonable belief that there could be a likelihood of harm to that patient uh, if that information is not blocked from his access. Uh, again, as I think I mentioned earlier, each analysis has to be individualized. You just can't say, well, you know, I think 
my patients are all going to have unreasonable anxiety if we just, you know, open up the gates and allow anyone and everyone to access biopsy results whenever they wish. The government has said that's not adequate. It must be an individualized analysis. And in other words, you can show that there's a direct likelihood of harm to the patient or another person. Kind of along the same lines with the oncology example, I've had a lot of oncologists uh, speak to me about this. Um, and they've talked to some of their patients about it as well, some cancer survivors. And some of the patients have said that they would prefer to speak with the physician before they saw the biopsy results themselves. And so under the, the second exclusion, the privacy one, could they, uh, could they delay it or block it based on the patient's uh, request that they delay until they speak with the physician? Would that be yes. permissible? Yes, that is my understanding. Uh, Laura, do you agree? I do. So, you know, guidance out there states that the practice um, is, if it's merely likely to interfere with access, use, or exchange, it could be considered information blocking. So, restricting access to a patient's lab results for a certain amount of time, even if the patient's not aware, that could likely interfere with access. Uh, so there needs to be that clear channel of communication and not that assumption by the provider. Have that conversation that there's a chance that the results will be X, Y, Z and let the patient make the decision. Uh, do you want me to go ahead and have those results released to your MyChart portal um, before I've had the opportunity to review and discuss it with you? Or do you want me to hold them back until I review them and we discuss? That makes a lot of sense. And in those cases, uh, what does a physician or provider need to do to indicate uh, that they met that exclusion? Uh, do they have to document it in the record or, or document when they're releasing the result? How, how does that need to occur? Well, Laura, I'll go ahead and take the first stab at that. Obviously, documentation is going to be very important in all instances of information blocking. As I mentioned earlier, pretty much each analysis must be individualized. And the only way that the provider is going to be uh, able to adequately demonstrate that will be through documentation. So in the example I gave earlier, I would almost verbatim write down exactly what that patient tells me into the medical record. Uh, and I would then use that as uh, my means to justify the information blocking So wait, let, let, me, let, me, let me take you then to a routine test that's done with the first pregnancy visit of say what is put to that provider uh, he or she is told is that is that uh, woman's first pregnancy and lo and behold she is rh negative and oh by the way she's rh negative sensitized which can only occur if there's a prior pregnancy and 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 this was not disclosed to the obstetrician or family practice physician and and her prior pregnancy was not known to her partner or significant partner and and, and now it does require an, a further exploration uh, of of the history how only to find out that, sure enough, she did have uh, a pregnancy, and, and, and embarrassing enough, she chose to electively terminate that, but did not receive uh, RH, a ROGAM, to protect her from RH sensitization. A hypothetical case. 
But a routine blood test might reveal that, sure enough, she's been pregnant before, her spouse or partner did not know. How, what do we do in a case like that? How does one handle that? Because that, that is potentially harm to the patient um, and her relationship. How does one handle a routine test that has a potential for harm when there's not full disclosure to you by the patient that she was in a prior relationship? That's a couple in my mind. <laughs> in my opinion, that goes into the patient's medical record, and there is no blocking of that information. You can only block it if you have a, quote, reasonable belief that blocking will substantially reduce the likelihood of harm to a patient or another person. From your example, uh, granted, it might be uncomfortable information, it might be embarrassing information, it might cause anxiety, but you have to go beyond that. You have to have a reasonable belief that it's going to result in harm to a patient or another person. Right, to add to that, so under HIPAA, um, we can deny a patient access, provided that the patient is given the right to have their denials reviewed by a licensed healthcare professional, and that that licensed healthcare professional has determined that that access that's being requested is reasonably likely to endanger the life or physical safety of the patient or another person. And this grounds for denial does not extend to concerns about the psychological or emotional harm. So it's not that I think the patient will not be able to understand the information or may be upset about it. Um, and then the PHI, if it makes a reference to another person and the access that is being requested is reasonably likely to cause substantial harm to the patient or that other person that's referenced in the um, protected health information, then those could be found reasons for denial. But outside of that, HIPAA does not allow that denial. Okay. So, so let's let's stay with the the delicate subject of sexually transmitted diseases while we're as long as we're at it. And someone does come in, and 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 the three of you know that I was the OBGYN. So, so three, so so someone comes in and uh, and she is seeing uh, her gynecologist and confesses that uh, she is concerned about an STD, and the STD. Would, would have been from an exposure outside of a current relationship. Uh, would that be um, justification to um, block the release of that information, if, if so documented in the record? Sure. So, so the information is being released to the patient's MyChart portal. Um, so is there a belief that this spouse or partner has access to the portal that would be able to retrieve that information. Um, and so in addition to that, you have to remember we're required to release that information to the health department. So even if we make the decision that there's a harm exception and we do not release that to uh, their MyChart portal, the health department's gonna call them and they're, gonna, they're probably gonna find that spouse or partner as well. All right, let me stay with you as long as we're going down the sensitive discussion rabbit hole. Let's say this is a, a 15, 16 year old who comes in and in the course of uh, the visit, uh, she is concerned and, and sure enough, she uh, is, is screened 
for an STD. The STD is negative, but she's a minor, and he undergoes a chlamydia and a gonorrhea test. Is this information to be disclosed? She's 15, 16 years old, and in the disclosure then is, are the parents, are, are they, can they then see this information? Sure. So the privacy rule is intended to assure that patients and their parents have appropriate access to health information and that parents have information about their children. Um, state law governs the disclosure of health information about a minor child to their parent. So states have created laws to assure that adolescents will seek health care that's essential to their own health as well as the public health. Um, in accordance with the applicable state laws, it's the minor and not the parent who can exercise the privacy rights afforded to them under the privacy rule. So we have patients who are age 14 to 17 and they are able to designate whether to allow quote unquote full or limited access to their patient to their parent or legal guardian. And so if that minor patient consents to full access, then they are allowing their parent or legal guardian to have access to health information that they would not otherwise have such access to in accordance with that applicable state law. Um, so it would be that patient who would share with their provider that they don't want the information released since they have consented to full access by their parent or legal guardian. So, but the, the patient could then say, if the, if the parent did have full access, um, mm -hmm. uh, instead of revoking that full access, which may maybe arouse some suspicions of the parents, they could just tell the provider block the release of this and call me with it? Could they do something along that line? They could. They could work that out between them and the provider because of the full access. Yes, it would be up to what that patient feels comfortable with and what we are able to accommodate. I, I totally agree with what Laura says. It also raises a, a question. Do you have the technical capability to only shut down one part of a medical record? And that's something that we'd have to rely on the uh, health information technology folks. Yeah. One of the other questions that I've got along these lines is psychotherapy notes are, I believe, one of the exclusions that was part of the information blocking rule. And so a lot of our behavioral health physicians or you know, even just ED docs or primary care docs that deal with behavioral health related issues wonder if they can block those because psychotherapy notes were excluded. How does, how does that provision, the psychotherapy notes exclusion relate to the information blocking rule? And what would you say to those that would like to block, I don't know, uh, the discussion of a patient's diagnosis of depression and, and a progress note? So my perspective would be that if the psychiatric symptoms and concerns are being discussed openly with that patient, what are the reasons to redact this from the patient's portal? Yeah, and, and some of it had to do with, you know, uh, not behavioral issues that maybe you would see in the emergency department, um, mania, things of that nature, patients coming in with suicidal ideation. Um, that could potentially lead to harm. It was just one of the things that was, uh, you know, 
specifically called out as not necessarily being part of the information blocking rule, but it defines psychotherapy notes as a very specific category of notes and not just a regular note that included behavioral health related issues. Right. Right. Well, any kind of therapy notes would not be released um, to the patient as part of a designated record set. So that information is whenever we have requests for any kind of therapy notes, you um, are required to fill out two authorizations, one for your medical records and one for therapy notes. And that is a second kind of review because it is protected. And so that would be if the um, therapist makes that determination of harm, then, then we would follow down that trail for denying that access. Okay. Jump answered a, a lot of the questions that we had. Uh, one of the, the last questions is, do we know what the, the penalties are right now for providers that may not follow our advice and, and <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and block the release of notes. Any error results without falling into one of those exceptions? Do we have any idea of what that looks like? Well, we have a, a, a perfect idea of how ambiguous the government is on this question. Uh, relative to providers, and I'm going to read it uh, verbatim, uh, that if a provider violates the uh, anti-blocking rules, he or she will be, quote, referred to the appropriate agency to be subject to appropriate disincentives. And there's nothing further than that. Now, I can speculate what that means. Uh, obviously, HHS is the department in question here, and all kinds of things fall under its purview, and two in particular would be CMS and the OIG. Uh, my guess is that at some point in time, an administrative decision will be made that the OIG or CMS itself will handle uh, uh, physicians who do not wish to abide by these rules. And, you know, the penalty could be anything all the way up to exclusion from the Medicare program. Um, but the government has given us no definitive definition of what the penalties would be at this point, but I do expect more guidance in the future. And I know the ONC did release some answers to some frequently asked questions um, just over the last month. Did either of y'all learn anything from reading through those FAQs that we haven't discussed that you think is worthwhile pointing out to the broader community? The one thing I did learn was that if you don't have an EMR, you're a provider out in the community, you don't have an EMR, none of this means you have to go buy one is my understanding, or if you really have, and that's part of the, the exclusions that you were mentioning earlier that, uh, you know, the technical limitations and, and that sort of thing, but there's no, I didn't get the feeling that this meant that you, know, you were going to have to go out and buy an EMR if you didn't have one. But. No, I, I think you're exactly correct on that, but I think that this is just one more reason why you're going to want to, uh, carefully consider your EMR options if you don't have a record, an EMR place, a record in place. And that, um, in my opinion, is a disincentive to move the physicians who are still paper-based over to the electronic world, which I think is a bad thing, but yeah. that's just me talking. I mean, and, and again, this is just kind of the beginning, the information blocking rule and 21st Century Cures Act implementation the very first part, the part that we've been talking about, is just a subset of all electronic health information. 
It's the USCDI um, subset that we talked about back in, I think November, we recorded a podcast on this originally. Um, and so over the next couple of years, more and more elements of all electronic health information will start falling into these uh, rules. So there's, it's, this is just the beginning for everybody that's nervous for, up to this point. Uh, exactly hey, correct. Jake, let, let me ask you a question. So for those who have a four or five, six-year-old EHR, uh, are they going to be forced into an upgrade? Or are they going to be forced into changing platforms? Or what do you, what do you see there? Based on my reading, it was it was not going to force you to do that. Um, it, it you know you didn't have to all of a sudden make something available that wasn't already easily available. Was kind of my reading of it. Away. I, I agree completely. Any other questions, Henry, for the group? Any other closing comments for the medical providers? I know you know April fourth is the deadline for this limited subset, the USCDI, to go forward. I'm sure we're going to get a lot more questions in the in the months going forward. No, no, I no, I really appreciate Laura and Wade coming on and, and helping to clear up very muddy water for all of those who who are listening in. And I, Jake, I think we're going to have to have this twosome back again as we get a little bit more to the operations side of this this blocking rule to kind of walk through some examples of where where we get some feedback from our colleagues across the system. Yeah, and I was wondering which cell phone number, which one of y'all uh, would you like me to put in the show notes for providers that have questions about this? Ms. Cummins. Wait. <laughs> uh, uh, any other closing comments from either of y'all? Really appreciate having you both on. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I understand and appreciate what you said now that you needed us to jazz up the program since Dr. Sullivan's a participant. So <laughs> happy to do so. Oh, we appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and, and thank you, everybody, to listen in to Right Care at Baptist. Remember that if you go to the bottom of the show notes on uh, where you find your, your podcast, you can take the CME survey link uh, and earn some CME credit. Thank you so much. <laughs>